God is a king, comes to earth as Christ, offers the same bread to all people, bread of heaven, life abundantly, same exact product, everyone. Not everyone responds the same way, though, don't they? This is this is more than just I have chocolate peanut butter ice cream. I take it to to a busy block in a big city, ten houses straight, four accept it, six reject it because of flavor tastes. This is more like I have ten million dollars, or so it seems to me, because I've accepted Christ. But I have ten million dollars. I take it to ten homes. Four accept their share and six reject their share. Why? Grace, kindness, salvation. Do you want to live? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want family in Christ? Do you want to live and do and breathe and be what you're made for, what your purpose is? Some say yes. Some say no. Why? For our purpose today in 2 Samuel, we'll cover three chapters. You're like, that's a lot of chapters, Kevin. They're three small episodes, really. And my my sermon write-up is the exact same page number, so you're not going to be here until nightfall. But generally speaking, it looks like this. A just and righteous reign from David. And then two separate receptions to that reign and administration, which is particularly a reign of grace. But first, let's pray. Father, Paul gives us an answer, and I guess I should have prayed a little longer. I may have included it in my scripture, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the things of God makes no sense to those who don't have the Spirit of God in them. So we ask for your spirit today. Fill our hearts with your presence. Have mercy on us. Fill all of our ears and our heads and our minds with the very spirit of God to receive the word of God today. Would we all be recipients of grace and not rejectors? Say what it is you desire. Have your way in our hearts. Please move me out of the way so people might hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A just and right reign. A gift by grace. And then lastly, a rejection and response. These are the three movements of today's message. A just and right reign. A gift by grace. And lastly, a rejection and response. Beginning in chapter 8, we start after this, David defeated the Philistines. If you forget after this, the author just talked about the situation that David had where God said, I'm making you uh, a temple. You don't need to make me a palace right now. So after this, David defeated the Philistines, subdued them, and took control of the mother city from Philistine control. That is a big deal. Any reader of 1st and 2nd Samuel knows that, that the Philistines have up to this point, they've basically been the arch enemies of Israel. 
David's fame originally grew in his slaying of the infamous Philistine Goliath. And Goliath came from Gath, which many believe this might be the mother city. In fact, if we compare what's told here with the telling in 1 Chronicles 18, which is the same story told, we do read there that David defeated the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its villages from Philistine control. So it is with David that their arch enemies are crushed, subdued. The main concern, as it were. Only this will leave room for another arch enemy to rise up in the monarchy. Only it ends up being David himself. What he's going to do in chapter 11. For now, he defeated, also defeated the Moabites. Now, some wonder at this because they've not been brought up in First Samuel. What we do know about the Moabites is that David has Moabite blood in him. His great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabite. Also in 1 Samuel 22, verse 3 tells us that David had, had gone to Moab to let his family stay there while he was on the run from Saul. But it's likely things change. Maybe even as far as Moabite leadership goes, they see this upstart become king. Now he's subduing the Philistines. He's taking land. Maybe they're concerned. So David defeats them. And after making them lie down on the ground, he measured them off with a cord. He measured every two cord lengths of those to be put to death and one length of those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's subjects and brought tribute. So this likely strikes us as cruel. For David's time, it was actually merciful. Uh, many nations had other ways of keeping defeated people in check, such as just let's mass murder everyone. Too many mouths to feed, that sort of thing. Or we saw in 1 Samuel 11, there was another neighboring nation, the Ammonites. He had a warlord of a name that I just love to say because it sounds like it belongs in a comic book, Nahash, the Ammonite. And he gouged out the right eyes of everyone. Why? To make them blind and incapable of fighting back ever in the future. Their strong eye no longer permitting them. And he's, Nahash is actually going to show up in name before the end of our study today. For David, he's allowing the Moabite nation to really continue, but just in a subdued, conquered state. They're right next to Israel. So it would be rather dumb of David to say, you lost this war, now go back and be your people. No, he, that was not an option if he didn't want to have, uh, have immediate reprisals from them. David also defeated Hadadezer, that's my way of pronouncing it, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, who went to restore his control at the Euphrates River. And some wonder if chapter 10, which brings up this guy's name, is actually going to deal with this war that we're talking about right now, or if chapter 10 is going to be an after-the-fact thing. Verse 4, David captured 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers from him, and he hamstrung all the horses, and he kept a hundred chariots. So another shocking, that isn't nice, David. We might say in our day and age, he hamstrung all the horses. Why couldn't he repurpose them, give them to farmers who needed them, take them into his own military? There was a few things, but keep in mind, the horses were like the tanks in their day. 
And just like we would wish for everyone to go deactivate their nuclear weapons and destroy all the paperwork and computer files on how to build those things, so it could be that David was disabling horses just like people might disable an enemy's armaments. Secondly, and maybe this should have been firstly, we talk about kings in Israel and how God said he was rejected when, when Israel asked for a king, 1 Samuel 8, 7. But even so, there are allowances in the law for the king. And though Saul shows us an example of an unrighteous king, David, a king after God's own heart, may be either consciously or subconsciously following the law in Deuteronomy, in which there God says, however, he, the ideal king, must not acquire many horses for himself, or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. In other words, David believes his success on the battlefield is in God's hands, not in man's or horse's feet. <laughs> Muscles. Not in the or hamstrings. Not in the number of horses, but in Yahweh's power. Joshua hamstrung horses in his battles. Uh, but meanwhile, David's son Solomon is going to have an extensive force of chariots. So you can see where his heart lies. Verse 5, when the Arameans of Damascus came to assist King Hadadezer of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 Aramean men. Then he placed garrisons in Aram of Damascus. So he's watching over the places he's conquered to ensure their continued conquest. And the Arameans became David's subjects and brought tribute. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. We will come back to that. Verse 7. David took the gold shields of Hadad-Ezer's officers and brought them to Jerusalem. So this same sort of thing happened with Goliath. If you remember, Goliath's sword was taken. It was brought in to be put on display. They thought they were powerful. I have their gold shields. I have their sword. Spoils of conquering foreign peoples. Verse 8. King David also took huge quantities of bronze from Beta and Barothai, Hadadezer's cities. When King Toai of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and to congratulate him because David had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Toai and Hadadezer had fought many wars. Joram had items of silver, gold, and bronze with him. King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold he had dedicated from all the nations he had subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, David made a reputation for himself. When he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, he placed garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites were subject to David. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. A repetition from verse 6. Having that summary twice in the passage, we shall likely consider that truth when we read in verse 13, David made a reputation for himself. It's more literally, David made a name for himself. And one chapter earlier, Yahweh did say to David, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. Sounds like what's been happening. I will make a name for you, like that of the greatest in the land. This is what's happening. And so David reigned over all Israel, 
We're given a few statements like this in 2 Samuel. But after this summary, we see likely it means Israel and all the neighboring nations he's just conquered. He's administering justice and righteousness for all his people. This is the type of leadership that God expects and demands. Years later, after the broken, fractured kingdom, God says through his prophet, Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says, go down to the palace of the king of Judah and announce this word there. You are to say, hear the word of the Lord, king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you, your officers and your people who entered these gates. This is what the Lord says, administer justice and righteousness. But by that time, they weren't. But David was. And for those in the kingdom of God, that is with hearts changed, born again so that we might see His kingdom, to use the words of Jesus in John 3.3, we might note that King Jesus reigns in justice and righteousness. And so what are examples of administering Justice and righteousness, and we're going to see that. So glad you asked. But first we get to the summary of what I like to call David's so-called cabinet, because they certainly had that term in that day. No, they didn't, but that works for me. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was, uh, which Joab is also David's nephew, he was over the army. And then we read about Jehoshaphat, and that's not to be confused with David's descendant and reigning Monarch, much later than David, found in the book of Kings and Chronicles. This here in 2 Samuel is a different Jehoshaphat. I know, two people got stuck with that name. Son of Aleud, the court historian. Zadok, son of Ahitub and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Siriah was the court secretary. Benaniah, son of Jehoiada. His fame comes later when we read that he killed a lion in a snowy pit. He was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Scholars say that these are likely mercenary groups of, of Philistine origin. And mercenary groups were good to have as the king's protectors because they're mercenaries and they're not really interested in likely political power, just money. <laughs> and David's sons were chief officials. So we get this summary of David's reign. He, he administered injustice and righteousness. He's made a reputation for himself, as Yahweh said he would. The Lord made him victorious wherever he went. And now we move to two episodes, two responses to this sort of reign. And it's interesting because in both instances, David will be acting the same. I believe the author goes out of his way to make us aware of that. He's going to be acting in kindness, and in both instances but he will receive separate responses. Much how Christ seems to elicit different responses in different people. For some, Christ is hope and salvation. For others, he must just be judgment, offense, and damnation. The author here in 2 Samuel 9 first shows us a response of gratitude as David brings a gift by grace. Chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone remaining from Saul's family that I can show kindness because of Jonathan? Now, Jonathan is a son of Saul. 
And if you're familiar with the story, Jonathan affirmed David's kingship long before Saul was dead. And David became king. In fact, Jonathan, Saul's son, died with Saul on the battlefield. But even so, the very week that David left Saul's presence and he began his long run away from Saul, which was ten years of him on the run, Jonathan says to David, If I continue to live, treat me with the Lord's faithful love. That's the same Hebrew word as kindness back here in 2 Samuel 9.1. It's hesed which some translations will call steadfast love, other translations will call loving kindness. But if I die, says Jonathan, don't ever withdraw your faithful love, as said, from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And so David is fulfilling this on behalf of Jonathan, to whom he loved for his sake. He asks if any of his descendants are still living. And we met one of Jonathan's sons. Or I should say, we actually met one of Jonathan's brothers, another son of Saul named Ishbosheth, a few chapters back. He had become king of a northern Israel before some of his own tribe murdered him. And eventually, Israel came together under David. So David wonders if there's anyone left in Saul's family. Verse 2, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son who is lame in both feet. So this is, as we'll see in verse 6, a mouthful, Mephibosheth. We met him briefly back in chapter 4. We learned there about his family, uh, his feet. We heard it here in verse 3. We're going to hear it again in verse 13. It's likely the author does not have a fixation on Meshibosheth's feet. Rather, he wants us to hear that he's not a threat as far as Saul's family is concerned for the throne. He's not going to be a pain for David. The king asked him, where is he, this son of Jonathan? Ziba answered the king, you will find him in Lodabar. That place is also mentioned in 2 Samuel 17.27. And it seems likely there to assume it's around Mahanaim, which was the previous capital of northern Israel where Ishbosheth was reigning from. So Ziba says, in Lodabar at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant? that you take an interest in a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. 
Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet, in case if you didn't know. So, just so we're all on the same page, what David is doing here is completely out of character for kings of his time. What kings do is, especially if they're a new king displacing a, a previous dynasty, such as the household of Saul, they usually murder and annihilate any entirely remaining family member. And this even happens later in the northern kingdom of Israel, 1 Kings 15, 29. So it's likely when Mephibosheth was summoned, he's expecting to die. He was only five, we were told in 2 Samuel 4, 4, when his dad Jonathan died. So who knows if he knew anything of David and Jonathan's friendship. But instead of losing his head, he really hears the gospel. So often in the gospel accounts, what does God heal? Cripples. People who can't do anything, neither did they do anything, yet they receive the compassion of Jesus. Sinners need saving. They can't do anything to earn such salvation. doesn't get any more clearer than Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. If someone brings you to a racetrack and says, your job is to cross that finish line. Oh yeah, you have one handicap. <coughs> Shoots them to the ground. Good luck trying to cross that finish line. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Crippled. Unable. Incapable. And what this looks like, Paul says, is living among our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Enslaved to desires. Whatever, whatever the flesh wants, that's what you do. What our, what our thoughts lead us to, and it's only, listen, here's the gospel, it's only because of this, but God, because you couldn't do anything, but God, who is abundant in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Him, with the Messiah, even though we were, there it is again, dead in trespasses. By grace you are saved, but God, that's what saves us. His love, His abundant mercy, His grace. What's the connection? Mephibosheth is crippled, incapable. He might as well be dead. He was a grandson of the king of the old reign, but he was suddenly an enemy up to the new king, and the new king calls him forth, and he not only saves him, but then he restores him to the king's station. You're eating at my table. The king's table. And that's the picture we see over and over. Dining with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at his table. That's salvation. It wasn't because of Mephibosheth. It was because of David and his kindness. The kindness of God as he called it. That's the gospel. 
And David is going to have and also extend this same sort of kindness to another person. But just as God gives grace to some and it softens their heart, but grace to others and it hardens theirs, so David will now face rejection in response. In this last episode of chapter 10, we read sometime later the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanan became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness, has said, steadfast love, loving kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanan concerning his father. Now, Nahash, as I alluded to earlier, he shows up in First and Second Samuel. We meet him all the way back in First Samuel 11. And since that was last Sunday, no, it wasn't. But he was an enemy of Israel in that story. It's one of the few stories where King Saul actually does something brave and commendable. Nahash was leading a wake of conquered peoples, and he came to impose himself on a city called Jabesh-Gilead. And all those people send word to Saul, basically saying, Hey, you're king. We wanted a king to fight our battles. Now's your time to shine, bud. Saul rallies all Israel. He heads there. He defends them. And he sends Nahash and his army back home. Apparently, we weren't told this in the story, but perhaps when Nahash receives word that Saul has a man that he finds as a threat to his kingdom named David, Maybe Nahash and David apparently became allies. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And maybe the Ammonites didn't seem to do much with the Israelites in the meantime. David holds peace with Nahash. Then Nahash finally dies. And David's likely wanting to show Nahash's son, I'd still rather be your ally. Here's a goodwill offering. Here's condolences. However, verse 2 continues, When they, David's emissaries, arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leaders said to Hanan, their lord, Just because David has sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries in order to scout out the city, spy on it, and overthrow it? So Hanan, trivial but ironic side note, Hanan's name means gracious. And this gracious man took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. Obviously, both in that day and ours, that would be a grave offense, an insult. The beard shaving, maybe not as much, but I think we get the idea. It's like stripping an ambassador, setting a flag of our nation on fire in front of us, kicking us out of the embassy and say, go tell your government that's what we think about your condolences. Verse 5, when this was reported to David, he sent someone to meet them, since they were deeply humiliated. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back and then return. Jericho, if you remember, was the city where Joshua, years and years and years prior, marched around seven times, the walls came down, and then he cursed it being rebuilt. And this curse is actually fulfilled in 1 Kings 16.34. But in the meantime... It's likely a desolate, small ghost town, a perfect place for humiliated emissaries to recuperate from something like this. Then I found this very interesting wording, verse 6. When the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David, 
Almost as if this was unexpected. We do that to everyone who comes here. I wonder why they don't like this. It's probably just a loss in translation idea. It's more than likely the Ammonites fear David goodwill offering was just a prelude to greater and greater dominance. Maybe the way we have quasi-cold wars today, each nation's just trying to get richer economically, and Israel is no doubt the powerhouse in their little domain. And the Ammonites want Israel to know they're not living voluntarily or involuntarily to serve Israel. So they make the first move, verse 6. They hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Arameans of Beth Rehob and Zobah, a thousand men from the king of Maok, ah, and 12,000 men from Tob. David heard about it and sent Joab and all the fighting men. The Ammonites marched out and lined up in battle formation at the entrance of the city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were in the field by themselves. When Joab saw that there was a battle line in front of him and another behind him, he chose some men out of all the elite groups of Israel and lined up in battle formation to engage the Arameans. He placed the rest formation excuse me, he placed the rest of the forces under the command of his brother Abishai, who lined up in battle formation, to engage the Ammonites. Verse 11, If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you will be my help. However, if the Arameans are too strong for you, I'll come to help you. So Joab is realizing he's surrounded. He's doing the best he can to engage on multiple fronts. But then Joab does something that seems out of character for him. If you remember, Joab was the guy who conspired and murdered the strongest figure of northern Israel who was trying to win northern Israel to David's side, which was southern Israel. Though Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was reigning in northern Israel, Abner, Ishbosheth's general, and actually Saul's bodyguard when he was still around, seemed to carry most weight in that kingdom. But at a previous battle, Joab's cocky brother, Azahel, was attempting to chase Abner down. Abner, much older and more experienced, warned Azahel over and over again, stop this pursuit, this won't end well. It didn't end well. (laughs) And for revenge, Joab murdered Abner when Abner was on a diplomatic mission. David publicly cursed Joab, and he distanced himself. But Joab has apparently been, and I don't want to say making it into David's good graces, but he's likely closing the distance that he may have made with his actions with David. Joab was the one who led the invasion into David's capital city, Jerusalem, and now he's trying to retaliate against this defense that the Ammonites have made. And look at this winger, he says. Be strong. We must prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Now, as I set the stage, we consider Joab's ruthlessness, killing Abner, and against David's wishes later on, Joab's going to kill David's son, who tries to take the throne from him. And still there will be another insurrectionist, and Joab is going to do this Judas kiss type assassination on him as well. 
David said, this man is violent, referring to Joab. But apparently the, the righteousness of David, which, which Joab should have likely seen enough to acknowledge, it seems to never wash off on Joab. Joab's brother, Abishai, which was mentioned in the text, he was around David, one of those opportunities that David had to kill Saul. And David said, no, I won't kill the Lord's anointed. It's not how I operate. That sort of thing. But a Joab apparently is more of a violent pragmatist. Dirty hands or not, he'll get it done. And at the same time, he's preaching, the Lord's will be done. I know some of us here, we're like, sounds like my kind of Christian. (laughs) Two things. I think commentators and we are right to step back and say, maybe not hypocrisy, but this guy's a work in progress. And that's the second thing for me, is that this just validates the historicity of the Scriptures for me. The authors aren't talking about flat characters who never change, but dynamic characters, like real people, because they are. Nahash was an enemy of Saul, but a friend of David. Nahash's son, Hanan, was also an enemy of David. Joab is a violent man, but he stays in David's kingdom, which we might consider the good guys. And though he's violent, he professes things that make him sound like maybe he understands God's will a little bit in all of this. But probably most pressing, we're this close to finding out that David is not quite the flat character either. He might be a man after God's own heart, but we're currently reading about the exact same war where he will next week sin rather infamously. For now, let's finish this chapter out. Joab and his troops advanced to fight against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, they too fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab withdrew from the attack against the Ammonites and went to Jerusalem. Apparently when the Ammonites retreated to their city, which is going to be, which is called Rabab, we see that in the next chapter, Perhaps their defense was such that Joab wasn't going to attack, or maybe Joab and his men felt like they've done all they wanted to do. They retaliated for the disgrace, paid to the emissaries. They were victorious in battle. Job's done, sort of thing. Let's go home. Yet it's not done for the Arameans. Again, these people don't want to be Israel's slaves. So we now read verse 15. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer sent messengers to bring the Arameans who were across the Euphrates River, and they came to Halam with Shobach, commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When this was reported to David, he gathered all Israel. So David's heading out this time. If you need a job done right, just do it yourself. He's not going to let them win. David and Israel crossed the Jordan and went to Halam. Then the Arameans lined up in formation to engage David in battle and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David had killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, commander of their army, who died there. When all the kings who were Hadadezer's subjects saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became their subjects." Which you know, if the Ammonites had just accepted the kindness and condolence offering to begin with, they would have avoided likely what they wanted to to begin with, becoming their subjects. 
After this, the Arameans were afraid to ever help the Ammonites again. Here's what I see and here's what I've been presenting. David's a king reigning like Jesus in both justice and righteousness. Even so, he's been giving bad people or bad trees. Saul's grandson, Saul who chased David down, tried to kill him several times. But for the sake of covenant with Jonathan, David extended grace and Mephibosheth received it. He was a cripple. He couldn't fight for a throne if he ever wanted to. He had no chance in a kingdom under a king who was personally pursued by his grandfather, personally opposed by his uncle Ishbosheth. But Mephibosheth had humility. And he received the status and the position that David granted to him. Like we can simply receive. We are crippled. We've offended God. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Christ comes and restores us from our crippled souls to his table. Another bad tree. David comes to Hanan, son of Nahash, who was once a fierce enemy to Israel, who was defeated by Saul, who befriended David. And Hanan takes stock of David and Israel and their growing power and sovereignty. And when he is extended a gift from David's gracious hand, condolences no less, Hanan resists. He doesn't need David's charity. He doesn't care about Israel. And he rejects grace. Like people after Hanan. God who? There's like 50 of them, aren't there? Don't tell me what to do. What sins? What do I need to answer for? Who are you, Jesus? And who do you think you are to say, I need your charity? Friends, we are much more sinful than we would likely ever admit to or confess to. And we are much more loved than we would ever know. God extends His grace through Jesus, through Him, as we come to the table of the king. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God, just like Mephibosheth did for David. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your scriptures are all about Jesus. Sometimes we think we're reading battle formations and itineraries, but somehow you sneak the gospel in there. Help us to be recipients of your grace, not rejectors. You yielded yourself in a deeply humiliating way to humanity through Jesus. It goes beyond humbling. It goes beyond humiliation. You suffered for your creation. And to think that we would be offended and spit and scorn you is beyond comprehension. The people do it. Help us to not reject you. Lord Jesus, if you have spoken to our hearts this morning, I pray that people would respond in the way, literally the way they know they should. It's not like you've made it unclear. Are there questions? Are there doubts? Of course. I doubt the weatherman every day, but I believe there's going to be weather. But Father, I just pray that you would re be received by everyone here. Take this truth with us as we continue our time. 
throughout this next week and the coming months. Help us to give the hope and grace that you've extended to us, to others. Freely we have received, freely let us give. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.